now we enter the second division. This is chapters 8 through 15. The second division is Samuel and Saul together. Samuel as the advisor to the king, as prophet of Yahweh, the one who sits on the divine council of Yahweh, and Saul as the king who's supposed to be guided by the prophet. So this division is going to lead this. But what we're going to find is Saul's not going to be the king that God wanted for Israel, but Saul's still the king that God is going to pick for Israel. And that's very important to understand. It's not the ideal king that he wanted for Israel, but it is the king that he's going to pick for Israel for different reasons. Now what we're entering into is what's called episodic narrative. Chapters 8 through 15 is episodic narratives, and we talked about this. Episodic narrative is where each story is kind of self-contained. And the amount of time between one story and the next story, we're not really sure. It's just like, oh, and some time went by. And it is kind of important that you understand each story to understand the theology that's being built. But the narrative as far as character development is not as tightly um, serial and flowing as the serial um, narrative that we talked about earlier. The first chapters in this division, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, are anti-kingship and pro-kingship. And you need to understand something that the Bible is going to do this very often. God is going to show himself to be anti-king, but he's going to show himself to be pro-king. And the question is, which one is he? And the answer is, it depends. What God is going to show is that he's very pro-king because this is what he's been initiating. This is what he's been pushing towards. Remember, from the very beginning, he made Adam and Eve the king and the queen of the planet. He gave them the right to rule and subdue the planet together as co-regents. But they were to rule under the will of Yahweh, under the, as the image of Yahweh, representing him. And so Yahweh made it very clear that true kingship, true queenship, is when one submits themselves to the will of Yahweh and does his will. When they chose autonomy, they lost kingship and they lost queenship. So in that sense, Yahweh is pro-kingship because that was his original intention. That was his original idea, is that, that man and woman would rule and subdue the planet in his name. Like he rules and subdues, not like we rule and subdue. However, that's not usually the kind of kings that we want. French Revolution, American Revolution, all these kind of things. We want leaders that will have total power and lead us. We say we don't want them to have total power, but we end up giving it to them eventually over time. And we want them to make all the decisions and make lead us and do everything that's difficult because we don't want to make those difficult decisions as humans. And that's what God is anti-king. The people are going to be pro-king. Samuel is going to be anti-king because he feels very offended and rejected by the request. And God is going to support neither one of them. And that's important for you to understand as we go into this section. The most important voice to heed is not the voice of the people and not even the voice of the prophet. The most important voice to heed is the narrator. Because the narrator is the one who has the hindsight under the inspiration of God to evaluate and put all the perspectives in the right light. That's the voice that we must listen to. So chapter 8, verses 1. In his old age, Samuel appointed his sons as judges over Israel. The name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second son was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. Instead, they made money dishonestly, accepted bribes, and perverted justice. Who do his sons remind you of? Eli. Eli. He has two sons. He appoints them as judges. 
What's different here is the narrator never criticizes Samuel for the behavior of the sons. With Eli, the narrator condemns Eli for the behavior of the sons, and God sends a prophet condemning Eli for the behavior of the sons. Samuel is never criticized in any kind of a way. So it could be that his sons are corrupt by the fact that every kid has free choice to go their own path. Even if you're the greatest parent or you're the greatest God of the universe, humans will still choose to go contrary to righteousness if they want to. So that most likely is the problem here. It might also be the reason why he made them judges in Beersheba, which is like sending somebody in the government to Alaska to man a station. You want them just completely out of the picture because you don't want them screwing things up. So it could be that he's recognized this and to protect, he might have signed them as judges before they became corrupt because power does corrupt and it could have been that they were totally decent and okay at the beginning, but when they became judges and power went to their head, they slowly became corrupted over time and so he moves them down into the desert away from everybody else. That could be the reason why they're there. That's an assumption, but at the same time, it's interesting they're in Beersheba. However, there is a negative point against Samuel. He appointed them as judges to succeed him. Nowhere has God ever given the impression of the picture that we have the right to pick the next leader in the, in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, Moses was not the leader of Israel because his dad was. He was appointed by God. Joshua was not the leader because his dad was. He was appointed by God. All the judges were not leaders because their dad was. They were appointed by God. In fact, one of the things you begin to see in Judges is the negative criticism. Gideon appoints his son as judge to succeed him, and Yahweh doesn't, and Abimelech jacks up the entire country. God does not assign humans to appoint the next leader. God anoints the next leader. And so one of the negative things that gets, now the narrator doesn't have to point this out here because he's already made that point in Judges. And one of the negative things against Samuel is that he's starting to create a dynasty. And then maybe the reason he's creating a dynasty is because the last several judges have been doing that. When Gideon pointed his son as king after him, then what you start seeing is that every judge after Gideon started doing that with their sons. And they started building little mini empires around Israel. And so it could be that Samuel is doing that because by the time Samuel comes in the picture, this is the cultural norm. It's not the biblical norm, but it has become the cultural norm. And that's very important for us to understand. As we look at our culture, we look at our traditions, as we look at the things the church does, is this the traditional norm of Christianity or is this the biblical norm? And a lot of times we conf confuse what we have done in as the American church for hundreds of years as biblical. And it may not necessarily be biblical. And so Samuel has fallen into the, the traditional norm by creating a dynasty of leaders after him, even though biblically God has made it very clear that he has no right to do that, only God appoints leaders. And this is going to be made clear in the fact that when they want a king and Samuel feels rejected, God doesn't pick Samuel to be the king, he picks somebody else. Because God is the one who anoints people, not humans. And when yet Samuel will physically anoint the king, he's doing it because God said, that's the guy. Do it to him. This is a negative point against Samuel, is that he has begun to create a dynasty, and he has no 
right whatsoever to create a dynasty. And if God had approved of these sons being judges, he would have picked them rather than Saul. So there is good and bad to all these people. This also becomes a negative thing because this is what's going to spark the people's desire for a king. If he had never appointed his sons as king or judges, they might have not gone about it the way that they did. So Israel comes in verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together. Now, elders, the only way you could be elders is if you were a landowner. So these are the wealthy people, the movers and the shakers of the culture. All the elders of Israel gathered together and approached Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you are old and your sons don't follow your ways. So now appoint us over us a king to lead us just like all the other nations. Now, what they immediately point out is you're old. And in that, their definition, that means that he's beginning to outlive his usefulness, which is interesting because the elders are probably not very young either. But what they're really concerned is, is that your sons are corrupt. They do not walk in your ways. They, don't, they haven't adopted your teaching. They haven't adopted your practices. And we're really, really afraid of what will happen when you die and your sons take the leadership. Now, is that a legitimate fear? Yes. The fear is legitimate. What you do with the fear is the question. God never really strictly, he never really, really condemns us for having fear. He condemns us for what we do with our fear or commends us for what we do with our fear. So their fear is totally legitimate, totally biblical in every way. So they say, appoint us a leader. We want a king to lead us. Now, what is the problem with their request? Just like other nations. Like the other nations. Is it wrong that they wanted a king? No. God has already been pointing them that way. God has already been pushing them that way. Eventually, we're going to find out you, you have to have a bunch of kings in Israel if they're going to produce Jesus Christ the king. He's already been pointing them that way. A lot of times that we've been taught that their desire for a king was wrong. Judges already said in those days Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Hannah looked forward to a king under the inspiration of God leading them. God's already pointing this direction. The problem is they want one like all the other nations. This is the worst thing that you could ever say. When, you're, when your kids say, but mom, everybody's doing it, that is the most anti-Christian, anti-God thing you could ever say. Now why? Because when God first chose Israel at Mount Sinai, and he decided to make a covenant with them, in chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, he said, I will make you my special possession. Though all the nations belong to me, you will be unique and special to me. You will be unlike all the others. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy means unlike anything else in all of creation. And remember, only Yahweh is holy. Only Yahweh is completely unique and unlike anything in creation. There is nothing you can compare Yahweh to. We are incapable of being holy, yet God calls us to be holy. The way we become holy is by uniting ourselves to Yahweh. 
when we leave everything else in creation, so to speak, the countries, the nations, the theology, the philosophies of the world, and we unite ourselves to God, we become holy because we're going to be used by him in an absolutely unique way, unlike anybody else's life is ever being used. And so when you say, I want to be like everybody else, you've automatically said, I want to be contrary to the will of God. I want to be contrary to the character of God. I don't want to be like God. I want to be like the world. And they say they want a king like all the other nations. Well, what are the kings of the other nations like? They have absolute political power, absolute military power. They do whatever they want, but what is it that they really want a king for? To defeat their enemies. And if they want one like all the other nations, they're automatically saying, who is not king? Yahweh. Even though Yahweh has been pointing them towards kingship, remember the Bible has also made it very clear that true kingship is submission to the will of Yahweh, being like Yahweh. There's nothing wrong with having a president. There's nothing like wrong with having a pastor. There's nothing wrong with having a leader of a company, a CEO. There's nothing wrong with all that. There's something wrong when you say, we want one like all the other companies. We want one like all the other churches. We want one like all the other nations. That's the problem. That when they cease to be unique, when they cease to be like Yahweh, that's the problem. And that is what's going to cause them problems. So God is not anti-kingship. He's anti-that kingship. Now, there's two words that are going to be used here. Melek means king. The Hebrew word Melek. The other one is Nagid. Nagid, N-A-G-I-D, and that's in the notes. Nagid means regent, vice-regent. It can be anything from tribal leader to a king that is under the power of a greater king. And what's interesting is when God comes along and says, give him a king, he doesn't use the word king. He uses the word nagid. Give him a vice regent. I have called a vice regent to be one like my own heart. And he's going to use that word. There will be times that God will use the word king, but most times he's using that. And what he's showing is that he doesn't want a king and the way that we think of king, Melech, absolute dictatorial power. He wants a king in the way that he thinks of a king as a Nagid, a vice regent submitting to his authority, his kingship. And that is the anti-pro-kingship language that is going to be used throughout this section. So that's the problem. And the other problem with the request, not as significant but kind of as significant, is that they want a king And who has God already picked as their leader? Samuel. He is not a king, but he is their leader, appointed by Yahweh. So they've decided that Samuel should retire. Did God decide that Samuel should retire? No. So they've rejected the one that God has already chosen, and they've decided that they want one that's like all the other nations. They've rejected a biblical leader for a worldly leader. That is the most offensive part. And they've decided that Samuel's too old. What's interesting is that Samuel's going to still serve as a prophet for over 20 to 30 more years after this. And God is going to use him in a very powerful way. In fact, 20 years from now, Samuel's going to kill an enemy king. So he's still very capably used by God. So God doesn't see old in the same way that they see old. They have decided to reject God's leader and they've decided they want a leader like all the other nations. This is what is so offensive. Not that they want a leader, 
but they want one like all the other nations. They want one that's not the one that Yahweh picked. Verse 6, But this request displeased Samuel, for they said, Give us a king to lead us. So Samuel prayed to Yahweh. Now know Samuel's first immediate response is to go to Yahweh. Yahweh said to Samuel, Do everything the people request of you, for it is not you that they have rejected, but it is me that they have rejected as their king. Now Samuel sees this first and foremost as a personal rejection of himself. And that's true. And that's very human. And there's nothing wrong with those emotions. But what God is making very clear, like, whatever, Samuel, it's me that they've rejected. That is the primary problem here. They've rejected me. Because I chose you to be the leader. I chose a different kind, a certain leader. And they rejected that. And not only have they rejected me as leader, but this is just as they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt until this very day. They have rejected me and have served other gods. This is what they also are doing to you. So now do as they say, but seriously warn them and make them aware of the policies of the king who will rule over them. So Yahweh says, give them what they want. They want a king like all the other nations. Give them a king like all the other nations. Warn them of what will happen, though. And that's important. This is going to begin to explain why Saul is not the king that God wanted, but Saul is the king that God chose. He doesn't want the Saul as a king because Saul is going to be king like all the other nations. But he's choosing a king like all the other nations to get the people exactly what they want. So Samuel spoke, verse 10, of all the words of Yahweh to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, here are the policies of the king who will rule over you. He will conscript your sons and put them in his chariot forces and his cavalry. They will run in front of his chariots. He will appoint for himself leaders of thousands and leaders of fifties, as well as those who plow the ground and reap the harvest and make his weapons of war and his cherry equipment. He will take your daughters to be anointed makers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your best fields and your vineyards and give them to his own servants. He will demand a tenth of your seed and the produce of your vineyards, and he will give it to his administrators. And his servants, he will take your male and female servants, as well as your best cattle and your donkeys, and assign them for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will be the servants. In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but Yahweh won't have chosen um, but Yahweh won't answer you on that day. The repeating word that is used over and over here is the word take. When he tells them you want a king like all the other nations, fine. I will give you a king like all the other nations. He will take, take, take take, take. He will tax you. He will take your lands from you. He will take your daughters from you to make things for him and serve in his palace. He will take your sons and conscript them into wars that you don't want to fight because they're about his power and his glory. And he will take your taxes, your money, and he will take, 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 take. You want a king like all the other nations? What do all the kings do? They take, 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 take. And on that day, when you're really ticked and angry about your political leader and how jacked up he is and he's violating your rights, 
then don't you dare cry out to God because this is exactly what you want. You want somebody like all the other nations? The people like all the other nations are autonomous, selfish people. And when they're given power, they abuse it. As Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when that day comes, don't complain to God because this is exactly what you want. So Yahweh commanded them to appoint a king that they wanted. Yahweh was going to give them exactly what they wanted, a judge for their desire of autonomy. And this is very important. God is giving them something that he doesn't want them to have. Because in the face of unrelenting human disobedience, Yahweh permits what he explicitly condemns, leaving humans to the consequences of their actions. Sometimes God gives you exactly what he condemns because you're so unrelentingly pursuing it and desiring it and begging for it and wanting it. He says, I have absolutely forbidden this in your life and my law, but I'm going to give it to you because that's what you want and that is going to be the consequences for your actions. And the place that you see this narrative-wise is here. You're going to see it theologically in the book of Romans when it says they pursued sexual immorality and unnatural desires and homosexuality and vileness and immorality. So God gave them over to their desires. Sometimes one of the worst consequences we could ever get is getting what we want. When you fight and fight and fight so hard for that job promotion in the process, you're sacrificing your family and then it takes even more time from you. Not that I'm saying every job promotion is going to do that. But if you want it that badly and you want it more than anything else, it probably will be that. When you want the bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger house and it ends up sucking more and more and more time and more and more effort to keep it going, there are so many things that we want and then when we finally get it, it becomes our own judgment, our own consequences. And God will sometimes give you what he explicitly condemns in your unrelenting persistence to become the consequences for your desires. This is probably where we get the less biblical phrase, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. But the people refused to heed Samuel's warning. No, you don't know what you're talking about, Samuel, we do. Instead they said, no, there will be a king over us, and he will be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, and he will lead us, and he will... Fight our battles. There you go. That's the real reason they want a king. They are fearing the enemy. And they want somebody to fight their battles. So Samuel listened to everything the people said and then reported to Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Do as they say and install a king over them. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Each of you go back to his own city. They want a king like all the other nations, but what does God do with them at the end of this event, this story? He sends them home. Why? Because even though they want a king that he doesn't want, even though they want a king for the wrong reasons, even though he's going to let them have a king, he's still going to be the one that picks it, not them. And that's so important for you to understand. Even though they seem to be in total control and they're getting what they want, and God says, fine, I'll give you what you want, he's still not going to let them pick the king. He's still going to pick it himself because he knows exactly what Israel needs. 
He knows exactly when Israel needs this kind of a leader and when they need this kind of a leader and when they need that kind of leader, depending on whether they need to be judged, punished, consequences, led, blessed, whatever it is. And he's still going to choose the king. He's still going to choose the leader because Yahweh is absolutely sovereign over his people, even in the midst of judgment. And so they each go back to their home, and now they have to wait the day that God is going to pick a leader. And that introduces us to Saul. 